Well, it's great to see you all this morning. It's good to be uh, here. It's good to be together. Unfortunately, my wife uh, is not here today. Um, as you all know, uh, we have a baby due in two weeks. Two weeks from today is our uh, due date. And so uh, Amber's sort of been struggling a little bit this weekend with a lot of uh, tightenings and back pain. Um, and so uh, she's uh, not, not in the best uh, uh, best way uh, this morning. So she's uh, home. So we appreciate your prayers uh, today and in the coming weeks. Um, I've got my phone on, by the way. So if it rings and Amber goes into labor, I will be out of that door as fast as you can. Um, so uh, so you'll have to excuse me if that happens. Um, Kevin, I know, is ready in season and out of season as the scripture commands. And so you'll... You'll all be okay, right, Kevin? Yep, yep, right, that's it. Excellent, glad to hear it. (laughs) Um, Okay, so if you have your Bible with you this morning, please open up to the book of Daniel, chapter 5. Daniel, chapter 5. This is study number 6 in our verse-by-verse study through uh, the whole book of Daniel. Uh, And chapter 5, again, is a very interesting and very fascinating Uh, chapter, and in some ways, uh, a chapter that will be familiar uh, to many of you, I am sure, because there is a very familiar saying uh, that we use in the English language that I'm sure you've probably heard before, uh, and that is this, uh, the writing is on the wall. Anyone ever heard that phrase, the writing is on the wall? Uh, Well, it's, it's a common phrase in that we use in the English language. It carries the idea of um, impending misfortune uh, or the idea that something uh, bad is inevitably uh, soon to happen. Uh, Now, while I'm sure you've all heard that phrase, you may or may not know that that phrase originates from right here in Daniel chapter 5. Because here in Daniel chapter 5, we have a a fascinating and very dramatic account of the fall of the great Babylonian Empire. Uh, Now, there's quite a bit written in secular history uh, concerning uh, this significant historical event. Uh, But this account here in Daniel chapter 5 is quite different uh, and unique from the accounts found in secular history for at least a couple of reasons. Uh, Firstly, from a historical perspective... In Daniel chapter 5, we have an eyewitness account of the fall of the empire from inside the palace of the king of Babylon. And so this is uh, an incredibly interesting chapter from a historical uh, point of view. Uh, But the second unique thing about Daniel chapter 5 is it places the fall of the Babylonian empire in its prophetic context. Because the fall of Babylon was prophesied beforehand. You'll remember back in Daniel chapter 2, when King Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, had that uh, dream uh, of a great statue that was made of many different metals, and the dream greatly troubled him. Uh, And the head of that statue was made of gold. And Daniel had said that, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. It is you and your empire, but there will come a kingdom after you. Your kingdom will fall, Nebuchadnezzar. 
Uh, and so the fall of the Babylonian Empire was prophesied many years before as God had revealed uh, to the king of Babylon that it would happen through uh, Daniel. Uh, and in chapter 5, we see that prophecy fulfilled. Uh, and so Daniel chapter 5 looks uh, in many ways at what causes the fall of an empire. Babylon, the head of gold, the great empire, was at the height of its power uh, and its pride uh, and its rejection of God. And we see uh, that Babylon, now the kingdom, the empire, comes to an end. And so the big lesson, really, the big takeaway uh, from this chapter, and it's a very serious one and it's a very sobering one, Uh, And it is a lesson that is summarized in a few words in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20, in which we are told that the soul who sins will die. Sin brings death. And this chapter is a vivid commentary on that truth. And it is true for empires, it is true for nations. It is true for individuals, and it is just as true today as it was back then, two and a half thousand years ago. Psalm 9, verse 17 says, The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. The doom of a nation is spelled when that nation forgets God. Indeed, the doom of an individual is spelled when that individual rejects God. The handwriting is on the wall, we might say, because sin brings death. And it is because that is the case that the gospel of Jesus Christ is such good news to this world today. Because although the wages of sin is death, The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And while it is true that sin brings death, Jesus gives life. And so anyone who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, to believe that he died for their sins when he died on the cross, and that he conquered sin and defeated death when he rose from the dead, he who believes on the Lord Jesus He will be saved. He will be delivered from the wages of sin, which is death, and shall be given the gift of God, which is eternal life. And so this is the lesson of Daniel chapter 5. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that your word is true, that it is living, that it is powerful, uh, that it has the ability to change and to transform our hearts and our lives. And so, Father, we ask that by your Spirit that you would speak to us, uh, that you would teach us, that you would give us those spiritual ears that we need to hear, that you will give us those hearts that we need to understand the spiritual truth of your word, that we may be encouraged, that we may be strengthened, uh, that we may be challenged, that we may be instructed in righteousness. Uh, Lord, so that we may be made complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing upon this time as we give you praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
So Daniel chapter 5, take a look at verse 1. Belshazzar the king. Stop there, I know what you're all thinking. Belshazzar the king? Hang on a second. Who's Belshazzar? Last week at the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar was the king. So who's this Belshazzar fellow and what on earth happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, in the middle of verse 2, we're given an indication because you'll notice in the middle of verse 2, we are told that Belshazzar's father was Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the word for father there in verse 2, it's a general word that would be probably better translated descendant. And so Belshazzar was a descendant of King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, And that tells us something important uh, to note by way of context as we begin chapter 5. And that is, is there is a significant gap of time between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. In fact, at least 23 years have passed between those two chapters. Uh, Incidentally, that also means that by the time we get to chapter 5, nearly 70 years have passed since Daniel first arrived in Babylon at the beginning of Daniel chapter 1. Now that will become significant later on because it means that Daniel at this point is probably in his mid-80s. He's an old-ish man. Now, So what happened then between the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5? Well, the book of Daniel doesn't tell us. uh, But we do know from secular history that King Nebuchadnezzar died in the year 562 BC, having reigned for some 43 years. And after Nebuchadnezzar died, he was succeeded by a series of five different kings. And the fifth and final of those kings was this king, Belshazzar. Now, not that I want to spoil the story for those of you who don't know it, but by the time we get to the end of chapter 5, Belshazzar will be dead. I'm afraid so. Belshazzar dies at the fall of the Babylonian Empire which is the subject matter of this chapter. Now, we know that the Babylonian Empire fell in October of 539 BC. So that's how we know uh, that there are at least 23 years between the end of chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar was still alive, and the beginning of chapter 5, which was 539 uh, BC. Uh, And during those 23 years, uh, those five successive kings ruled (coughs) And so as we pick up in chapter 5 and verse 1, we find that fifth king, Belshazzar, is now the king of Babylon. And the narrative begins um, on the very final day of his reign, as his empire and his reign is about to come to an end. And so uh, take a look again then at verse 1. Uh, We'll read into the narrative. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords... And drank wine in the presence of the thousand. And while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. 
And then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. And so here we find King Belshazzar throwing a giant party there in the city of Babylon. Now, that was nothing unusual for ancient uh, kings, and it wasn't unusual to throw kings, uh, throw uh, parties or feasts for thousands of people. That was quite common for these, um, these rulers in those days. Uh, and during such a feast, <coughs> it would have been common for the king uh, to sit on an elevated table, sort of on a stage at the front of the room, um, with, the, with the light uh, or the lampstand of the room sort of opposite him, so it would be shining towards him, so he would be there in all his splendor and all his glory before all his thousands of guests, so that everybody could see him, uh, the glorious and powerful king of Babylon. But notice here in these first four verses, we see uh, something very important about this king, Belshazzar, and that is his pride. His pride. In fact, we see that Belshazzar has contempt both for men and for God. Here in these first four verses. Firstly, we see his contempt for men. Now, this particular night was a very significant night in history and we know as i mentioned that the year was 539 bc we know that this was i think the 14th of october of that year and at this time the medo persian empire had risen and had become significantly powerful they had been conquering city after city they had been gaining territory after territory and on this very night that belshazzar was throwing this party the armies of the Medo-Persian Empire had reached the city of Babylon and were surrounding it, ready to besiege it. And how does Belshazzar respond? He responds by throwing a big party. He shows no concern, uh, no worry. In fact, he couldn't care less about the armies that were surrounding Babylon. He felt very safe. He felt very secure. And he decided to have a big celebration. And you think, well, that sounds a bit strange. What's the deal? Well, when you understand a few things about the city of Babylon, it begins to make a little bit more sense. Because Babylon, the city, was the most magnificent and luxurious city in the entire ancient world. You may have heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the uh, wonders of the ancient world. And as a city, it was uh, 15 square miles in size, and it had one and a half million inhabitants, which was massive for a city in those days. And the city was surrounded completely by giant walls, Walls that were 85 feet thick that they used to have chariot races on 
and they could fit six lanes of chariots on the top of these walls. They were so massive. The walls were 350 feet high. They had these lookout towers, which were 450 feet high, all the way round. The gates were all made of solid bronze. Uh, And in addition to that, the river Euphrates ran through the middle of the city, guaranteeing a supply of fresh water constantly. And Babylon was known to store enough food within the city walls to last uh, the inhabitants for 20 years. And so you can see where Belshazzar is coming from. I don't care that all these armies are outside our walls. There is no way in a million years they can get into our city. Our city is impenetrable. And they can stay there for 20 years and we've still got enough food and water to survive. So we don't care. We are the greatest empire in the world. This is the greatest city. I am the greatest king. Let's celebrate. Let's have a party. So that was his attitude. Now, there is an important lesson here for us to take away from the attitude of Belshazzar. And that is this. That Belshazzar had a sense of security that was a false sense of security. And it was a false sense of security because it was in what man had done and what man had made. And there is no security in what man has made. So the lesson is simple, and that is this. Do not put your trust in anything that man has made. Everything that man has made one day will fail. One day it will fall. Rather than putting your trust in what man has done and what man has made, it is so, so important that we put our trust in God, who he is and what he has done. God who never fails. Psalm 118 verses 8 and 9 tell us this very thing. The psalmist says it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. It was a lesson Belshazzar would have done well to heed but he did not. It's a lesson that we will do well uh, to heed here this morning. And so the first thing we see is his contempt toward man, but also in these verses we see his contempt toward God significantly. Notice verse 3 again. They brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. And they drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Now remember all the way back in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 2. When Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem in 605 BC. And not only did he take away the inhabitants of Judah captive, including Daniel and his three friends. But in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 2, we are told that he also went into the temple of God in Jerusalem. And he took out of the God some of the articles that were used in the worship of God in the temple of Jerusalem. And he took them back to Babylon and he put them in the temple of his gods in Babylon. 
Now, he did that because that was what kings did when they conquered other nations back in those days. And the whole idea was, right, I'm going to get the things that you use to worship your God, and I'm going to take them, and I'm going to put them in the house of my gods. Uh, In other words, it was like saying, look, my God is better than your God. My God is greater than your God. My God has conquered your God. Now, we know, of course, that wasn't the case because the only reason that Babylon was able to conquer Jerusalem and Judah was because the Lord gave Judah into his hands. But here now we see nearly 70 years after Nebuchadnezzar had taken the articles from the temple of God in Jerusalem and placed them in the temple of the Babylonian gods, that Belshazzar on this particular night when he's throwing this big feast with all his lords and all the important people in the city of Babylon uh, decides that it wasn't enough to just drink the wine and do everything that he was doing, but he wanted to do so using the articles or the vessels from the God of Israel that were taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And he wanted to use those vessels in his drunken party, in his worship of idols. In other words, Belshazzar wanted to use the holy vessels of God for unholy purposes. So make no mistake, this was a very deliberate act of open mockery and blasphemy against the God of Israel. Now it's significant that he specifies that he wants the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Babylon conquered many cities, and those cities would have had many temples, and they would have worshipped many gods, and there would have been many vessels in the temple of the Babylonian gods. But it wasn't any other vessels he wanted. He specifically wanted the vessels that came from the temple in Jerusalem, the vessels that were used in the worship of the god of Israel. Why? Because as we shall see later, Belshazzar knew that the God of Israel had said that his kingdom would fall. He knew. And so here were the Medo-Persian armies all around Babylon. And he's thinking, ah, that God of Israel through that Daniel, he had said that our kingdom is going to fall. He doesn't understand how great our city is. He doesn't understand how powerful I am. There is no way that is going to happen. Let's get his articles, bring them in vessels, and use them in our worship of false gods to show how ridiculous uh, the God of Israel really is. You see, this was open mockery, rejection, and blasphemy against the God of Israel. Now, before we move on in the narrative, I do want to point out one thing that I think is significant here. That, Nebu- uh, that Belshazzar called for the vessels of God from the temple of God in Jerusalem. Because when we come into the New Testament, we also read about the vessels of God and the temple of God. But in the New Testament, the vessels of God are not cups of silver and gold, and the temple of God is not a, a building. But in the New Testament, the vessels of God are you and I. And the temple of God is you and I. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 20, we read this. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. 
Therefore, is the application, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honour, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. You see, you and I are vessels of God. That is, we are those in whom and through whom God works in this world. And the exhortation is there that we would be vessels of honor, that we would use our bodies and our lives to uh, be those vessels that would bring honor and glory to God in this world. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, we're told, uh, Paul tells the Corinthians, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You see, we're not only vessels, but we are also the temple of God. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in every believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, And here in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar was taking the vessels of God from the temple of God, the holy vessels from the holy temple, and he is using them for unholy purposes. The exhortation to us in the New Testament, as we are vessels and we are the temple of God, is that we would use our body and our lives for the holy purposes of God. Not to use our bodies and our members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, Paul said in Romans chapter 6, but to present ourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And so we are holy vessels set apart to be used for holy purposes. And that is something that we would all do well to remember. And so, moving on then, we've seen the contempt of the king in the first four verses. Notice then, beginning in verse 5, we see that there is a message for the king in verses 5 through 9. And this message for the king is a message from God. Take a look at verse 5. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared... And wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Now get the picture here. This is quite the dramatic scene. There are thousands gathered in this big banqueting hall of the king. There in the city of Babylon. They're all having this drunken party. Uh, this, this immoral um, sort of orgy of worship unto these false uh, gods and the king is there seated on his throne on this elevated stage where everybody could see him uh, the lampstand was facing the king so that it was sort of like a spotlight so the king was seen by all the people in all his splendor and glory and then all of a sudden out of nowhere a gigantic hand appears and begins writing on the wall. Now, as we shall see in verse 6, this scared Belshazzar half to death, as I'm sure it did everybody else who was present. And what's interesting, uh, according to uh, verse 5, is that this handwriting was done on the wall opposite the lampstand. The wall opposite the lampstand was the wall that was in the brightest part of the room, which was typically where the king 
was sitting. And so if I'm the king and you're the lords, the lampstand is over there shining towards me, the writing would have been taking place right there. And you can imagine the scene, can't you? All of a sudden it appears, and I am out here looking at you, basking in my glory and splendor, and all of a sudden your jaws hit the floor, and you look deathly afraid, and I'm like, what are they looking at? And you can picture it, can't you? That's the scene. And so verse 6. The king's countenance changed, you don't say. And his thoughts troubled him. So much so that the joints of his hips were loosened. And his knees knocked against each other. And I don't want to be crude here at church on a Sunday morning. But the idea here is that he wet himself. Lost all control. He was deathly afraid. And so, what's he going to do? Verse 7. The king cried aloud. He cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. Sound familiar? And the king spoke and say unto all the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. (laughs) Sound familiar? This is precisely, of course, what happened with King Nebuchadnezzar when he had the dream of his statue and then uh, had the dream of the great tree. What could he do? He was helpless. He was hopeless. All he could do was call out for the wisest men in all of the land to come and help him and explain to him what this handwriting on the wall was saying. And so what happened? Verse 8. All the king's wise men came and they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Sound familiar? The wise men all came But they didn't have a clue. They could not help the king. And so, verse 9, King Belshazzar was greatly troubled, his countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. And so, here's what's happening. The hand that wrote on the wall is the hand of God. The message that is being delivered to the king is a message from God. The words that were written were very literally the word of God. And yet all the wise men of the world, they couldn't even read it, let alone understand it. And that illustrates a very important truth for us today. Something that Paul points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. Uh, And that is that the natural man cannot understand the things of God. The natural man cannot understand the things of God. When it comes to God's word, what is needed is not intellectual ability 
It is spiritual ability. And the spiritual ability to understand spiritual truth only comes from the Holy Spirit. And that is why in the New Testament, time and again, we are reminded of this fact that we need to depend upon the Holy Spirit for spiritual understanding. We need to depend upon the Holy Spirit if we are to understand the Word of God. There are a great many people in this world who have great intellects that know everything that the Bible says, but yet they don't really know anything that the Bible says because they have all the intellect. They have all the intellectual ability, but they have none of the spiritual ability because they have not the Spirit of God. And that is why it is very important that here on Sunday mornings that we pray before we study God's word and we ask God to open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, that God would grant us that spiritual understanding that we need to understand the spiritual truth of his word, recognizing that ultimately it is the Holy Spirit who is our teacher. And that is what we need when we come to the word of God. And so here in Daniel chapter 5, the word of God is written on the wall and all the wisdom of this world cannot help, cannot read it, cannot understand it. And so the king is in a place of hopelessness and helplessness. He is deathly afraid. And so what happens next? Well, in verses 10 through 12, now we see that someone gives some advice to the king. Some advice to the king. Take a look at verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. And the queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. Now the queen here is not going to be Belshazzar's wife, as we shall see in the verses that follow. Uh, this is likely the queen mother, uh, and it, is, uh, it has been suggested by the commentators that this queen, who no, no doubt would have been an elderly lady, as we shall see, uh, may well have been the, ne- uh, the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And so she was certainly a witness of everything that happened under King Nebuchadnezzar, as we shall see. Anyhow, so the queen uh, hears of what happened. She rushes into the banqueting hall. Uh, she talks to King Belshazzar. She says, do not be troubled. Uh, Don't let your countenance change. Why? Because verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, that is Nebuchadnezzar, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. (laughs) So the queen knows about Daniel. She knew all about Daniel. She knew that Daniel was a man of great wisdom uh, and stature under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. She knew that Daniel was gifted in the interpretation uh, of dreams. 
She knew that Daniel had interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great statue. She knew that Daniel had interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great tree. She knew all that had happened through Daniel. And so, she comes into the king and her advice to the king is simple. This is one of those times, king, just like happened to your father Nebuchadnezzar, where none of your wise men can help. And you need a word from God, the true and the living God. And Daniel is the one through whom God will reveal himself to you. So you need to call Daniel. And you need to call him now. Now what's interesting, of course, is that Daniel obviously was not at this party. He wasn't there. Now why he wasn't there um, could be a number of reasons. He certainly wouldn't have been there at this idolatrous, immoral party. We know from uh, previous chapters that Daniel would not have participated in such uh, a thing. But remember, Daniel now is in his 80s. And it is quite possible and quite likely, because Belteshazzar uh, obviously uh, didn't think to do this, that, that Daniel may well have been retired from active service. Uh, he had been active as the chief of uh, the wise men in Babylon for many years, but now he's in his mid-80s. No doubt he'd been inactive maybe for some years, certainly throughout the reign of Belteshazzar and maybe Belteshazzar's father uh, as well. And so it took this woman who'd been around, this queen who'd been around for many years uh, to advise the king to call upon Daniel. Uh, and so, verse 13, we see the request by the king. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, who my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, just a note there on the third ruler in the kingdom. Uh, Belshazzar was a co-regent king with his father. And his father was not active during this time, and so Belshazzar was the de facto king. But technically speaking, uh, his father was still king, and so they were co-regents, number one and number two. And so the next highest position that could possibly be given in the kingdom was the position of number three. Uh, and so that's why uh, he offers the third position. It's the highest position uh, in the palace as a reward for uh, doing this. Now, Daniel's response beginning in verse 17 is interesting. But I just want to point out here that Daniel is now called in. Daniel is in his mid-80s. He's clearly been off the scene and been inactive for a number of years. It may well have been many years, may well have even been 25 years since Daniel was last used greatly by the Lord in Daniel chapter 4 to interpret that dream. However long it was, clearly Daniel 
uh, has been sort of out of active service for some time. But now the Lord brings him back. And I wonder during those years whether Daniel sort of ever thought, ah, I'm just kind of on the shelf here. I'm not really, you know, doing anything. Lord, is there anything I can do? You know, I'm just kind of hanging out here, not really doing much. And I wonder if he kind of felt like he'd, you know, was no longer important or no longer significant. Uh, We see here in Daniel chapter 5 that certainly wasn't the case. And I've no doubt that Daniel continued to be faithful, continued to be faithful to the Lord in his own life, uh, in his prayer life. We'll see his prayer life when we get to chapter 6. But he continued to be faithful. Uh, And you know, there are times and seasons in our lives. There are seasons when God will use us, and then there are seasons when he wants to minister to us. And oftentimes the seasons in which God is not using us so much Uh, exist because they are seasons in which God wants to minister to us and even prepare us for what will later come. And and I think that's important to recognize because it means that we ought not to be discouraged in seasons where maybe the Lord is not using us as much as maybe he used to. Uh, And there are legitimate seasons in which the Lord has other things that he wants to do in our lives. Uh, And so we ought not to be discouraged, but we ought to just be faithful uh, in our spiritual lives, faithful in our relationship with the Lord, and trust that the Lord, that he will do what he's going to do, and he's going to do it when he's going to do it, and we can just trust our lives unto him, and just have that patience uh, that he will give to enable us. And so anyhow, the request by the king to bring in Daniel. And so beginning in verse 17, begin the words of Daniel. Now before Daniel gives the interpretation, he cannot resist the temptation to preach a sermon. And so beginning in verse 17, he says, Daniel answered and said before the king, King, let your gifts before yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and I will make known to him the interpretation. And so here, remember Daniel in his mid-80s, what, third in the kingdom, you know, all these things? Do you think I care? I don't care. I don't care about any of those things. Those things are not important. And, you know, here in his mid-80s, Daniel is now a a man of experience and a man of wisdom. And the things of this world hold no appeal to him whatsoever. He's not interested in the things of his world. He has no ambition personally. His only interest is in the things of the Lord and in serving the Lord. And so he says, King, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what it says. I'll give you the interpretation. But all that stuff, not interested. Doesn't bother me at all. So verse 18, O King, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whoever he wished, uh, he put down. And so he points out the power and the authority that Nebuchadnezzar the king had and the fact that it was the Most High God 
That is the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The true and the living God was the God who gave Nebuchadnezzar the authority and the kingdom, not the gods of Babylon. And so verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up, that is Nebuchadnezzar's heart, when Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. And then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. And they fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. And so that was last week, chapter four, right? Uh, Now, for us, it was a week ago. For Daniel, this was about 25 years ago. So this was a long time ago. But this is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. This was the lesson that God taught him. That God had spoken to Nebuchadnezzar through the dream of the statue. That he'd spoken to Nebuchadnezzar through the rescuing of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. That he'd spoken to Nebuchadnezzar through the dream of the great tree. All the while trying to teach Nebuchadnezzar, I am the most high God. I am the one who is in charge. I am the one who has authority. And each of those times Nebuchadnezzar rejected the authority of God. And so what happened? Well, God humbled him. He humbled him and gave him the heart of a beast and made him like an animal for seven years to scrounge around on the floor on his hands and knees. A most humiliating fall from grace for the great king Nebuchadnezzar. But it had a purpose. The purpose to teach him that it is the most high God who rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And indeed, Nebuchadnezzar, as we saw last week, he acknowledged that truth. And his kingdom was restored to him, just as God had said. But not before he came to know and understand and acknowledge that God is God. But notice then in verse 22. That's what happened to your father, Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 22, but you... His son, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, although you knew all of this. Now, before Daniel gets to the interpretation, Daniel is going to point out to Belshazzar his sin before God. And this is the first sin. You knew all of this happened. You knew what God did to Nebuchadnezzar. You knew the lesson that God taught Nebuchadnezzar and you knew that he acknowledged that God was the most high God who rules in the kingdom of men. You knew all that and yet you, Belshazzar, you refused to humble yourself before God. Even though you knew. Even though you knew. Belshazzar's rebellion against God was blatant. His attitude toward God was absolutely unrepentant. He knew all of this, yet he still rejected God. He sinned against knowledge. He knew the truth, yet rejected it anyway. And sin against knowledge is a very serious thing. 
In fact, the Bible tells us when it comes to God, there is no person in this world that is without excuse because the attributes of God are clearly seen in God's creation. But it is also true that we are accountable before God for everything that we know. And to know the truth and to reject it in many ways is is a greater sin and a more serious sin. And that's a sober warning for all of us. And it's a sober warning for anybody who would come to church and would hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've heard the truth, they know the truth, and yet they still resist the truth and reject the truth. It's a serious thing. And if that's you here this morning, humble yourself before the Lord. Humble yourself before the Lord. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. Believe on him as your savior and God will forgive you. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Don't sin against knowledge. Belshazzar, he sinned against knowledge. Secondly, verse 23, notice, he blasphemed God. And you, Belshazzar, verse 23, you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. You have dishonored the holy vessels of God. You have used the holy vessels of God for unholy purposes. You have placed yourself above the most high God. You have blasphemed God. And there's a third sin here, and of course it's the sin of idolatry. Again in verse 23, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, and the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. The God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Wow. And so you see his sins. He sinned against, he he knew the truth, yet he rejected it anyway. He blasphemed God. He worshipped other gods. And there's something of a progression in that that Daniel points out. You know, it starts with rejecting the truth. And before long, you're not only rejecting the truth, but you're actively blaspheming God. And before long after that, you're actively worshipping false gods. And it can be so subtle and it can be so deceptive. But it's it's a road that many travel down and it begins with sinning against knowledge. If you know the truth, give heed to the truth. Don't go down that road. And so, now he gets to the interpretation. And it's worth pointing out that Daniel needed to say all that before the handwriting on the wall would make sense. Because we know, because of how we use this phrase, because Belshazzar had not glorified but had rejected the God who holds his breath in his hand and owns all his ways, The writing was on the wall for him. 
literally. That is what the writing was on the wall for. Because you'll see verse 24. Daniel says, The fingers of the hand were sent from him, the God who you have refused to glorify. And this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Many, many tekel ufasin. Verse 26, this is the interpretation of each word. So just four words. Actually, three different words. Four words were written by the hand on the wall behind the king. Many, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. And that word was stated twice. Your days are numbered In fact, your days are now over. Remember the head of gold and the chest and arms of silver? God said to Nebuchadnezzar that there will be another kingdom after you who would replace you. And this is what God is saying to Belshazzar through Daniel. I have numbered your kingdom and have finished it. It has come to an end. The second word, verse 27, tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. In other words, you don't measure up. You've come up short. It's the idea that you've got the standard on one side and Belshazzar has fallen short of that standard. Because of his pride and his not giving glory to God, he's been found wanting. And then verse 28, Perez, which is another form of the word uh, you fasten in verse 25. Your kingdom has been divided. That's what it means literally. And given to the Medes and the Persians who were at this very night outside the walls of the city ready to besiege it. Ufasin means to divide, and the kingdom would be divided between the Medes and the Persians, that joint world empire that was now to succeed Babylon. And so Daniel interpreted the handwriting on the wall, and the handwriting was literally on the wall for the king. And so you can see why that phrase has made its way into common usage in our language your days are numbered you've been found wanting your kingdom will be divided your doom is certain it's inevitable it's going to happen it's only a matter of time the handwriting is on the wall and when God says it you can believe it because it's certain to happen now Belshazzar in his pride and his arrogance, gave the command, verse 29, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom, not that Daniel cared. But verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. 
Now, this change in rule and empire will become very significant for the Jews in captivity, as we shall see when we get particularly to chapter 9. Because you'll recall chapter 5 is taking place nearly 70 years after the captivity began, and you may be aware that the captivity that God had uh, prescribed for the kingdom of Judah was a 70-year captivity. And so this change in empire and this change in ruler will bring about the return of the Jewish captives to the land of Judah. But we'll come to that in the coming weeks. But that very night that God spoke to Belshazzar, that Belshazzar had rejected God, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain and Babylon was defeated. Now, now you may be thinking, well, if Babylon was such an impregnable fortress, how on earth did the Medes and the Persians manage to conquer it? Uh, and this is an interesting historical um, aside. Because from history we know that the Medes and the Persians, they came together and they gathered around against the city of Babylon and they spotted a weakness in the city. A weakness that the people of the city hadn't noticed. And that was the river. The river that ran under the walls and through the city. To the Babylonians, it was the river that provided them a constant source of water. So they thought they were safe. But what the Medes and the Persians did was that they built a little dam and diverted some of the water away from the river. And so the water level started to go down and down and down. And just when there was enough room under the wall to breathe, the armies piled in. And Babylon was completely unprepared. And Babylon was defeated quite easily that night. And the king was put to death. And so, the lesson then where we began is simply this. And that is that Babylon fell ultimately because of sin. because of pride, because of rejection of God, rebellion against God. And sin always leads to death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so while talking about sin and death seems a bit doom and gloom, uh, and in many ways it is because it's a serious thing, we stand here with a great message of hope that although the wages of sin is death, although the soul that sins will surely die, yet there is hope. There is hope of forgiveness because that sin which causes death has been dealt with by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he died for our sins. He took your sin and my sin upon himself so that sin would not be attributed to us, but through faith and trust in him, 
We give him our sin and he gives us his righteousness. And so we're able to be forgiven. Restored to relationship with God and have the blessed hope of eternal life. Delivered from the power of sin and the penalty of sin which is death. Delivered unto a wonderful and glorious salvation. And that's the hope of the gospel. So, Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the wonderful hope that we have in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Father, we thank you that it is by grace that we have been saved. Lord, that it's not of works as if we could do anything to earn our salvation or to take away our sin. Lord, but what we could not do, you did for us. Because you so loved this world that you gave your only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And so, Father, we give you thanks and praise. We give you all the praise, honor, and the glory this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.